Ecclesiastes 4, as we move on. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And by consider this a depressing book. It is a depressing book. Especially if you don't know the answer, uh, as our memory verse is, you know that there is eternity and there is a God that we are accountable to. And so, uh, this is a... He's a little more pessimistic, I I think, in... uh, in chapter 4. But I think there's, it also has a, a very quoted text to it. We're, we're not going to get to it here today, but there's a very quoted passage in here that we use for encouragement. And so, you know, he, he ends in that way, and he kind of has that trend. He'll be like very down at the beginning of a chapter, and then he'll get a little bit of hope, and then he'll be like, come to the end and feel like, I don't know. And, and so he, he's kind of up and downsy in that way. A reminder that Solomon is looking for answers in this world, on the earth. That is it. He's not looking outside to eternity. He's not looking uh, to God for answers. He's seeing, is there satisfaction in this earth? Uh, he uses the term under the sun. Can I do anything under the sun you know, in this way? He's looking for answers on the earth. He's assuming, uh, and he's looking for these answers as if there is no God, and as if um, there is no eternity. Like, like life doesn't continue after this life. At least he tries to. He tries to do that way. He tries to set himself to the limits of, I'm only going to look for answers under this earth, under, this, or under the sun, on this earth, and without eternity in mind, without considering to God. But he comes back to him again and again. And I think that's telling. I think it's very telling. This is like our world today. Take evolutionists. Uh, take scientists, for that matter. Same thing, usually. Uh, atheists. Agnostics. Satanist, paganism, on and on and on. Anybody who is against God in this way and who will say vehemently that there is no God, there's no evidence for God, and they uh, uh, will live a life in contradiction, you know, or in, in contrary to God, uh, just in despite Him, but they'll spend so much of their time fighting against the God they say does not exist, railing against Him, mocking Him, mocking His people and His book and His Son, that if there is no God, they're the fools. Why do you spend so much time doing that? If he's not real, why all the focus? Why all the attention? Why all the energy? Why such a rebellion? Why all this? It almost, if you look at it and you observe it, you have to come to the conclusion they're fighting awful hard against something. Wonder who that is. Wonder what that is. And so it's almost like they more prove the point than they prove against the point because they're spending so much time focusing against something they say isn't there. You know, and so Solomon kind of does that. I want to say there is nothing out there. But there is, and he keeps coming back to it. Why so many books today? So many articles, so many TV specials, uh, so many speeches or lectures. Why, uh, with all these different thoughts and arguments that they give out to prove that he's not there? If he's not there. You know, but if, it, if he is there, you know, they're just fighting against him to fight against him. And I think it more proves the point that he is there. They try to prove him by their attentions and their anger and their attacks but, but they just prove that he is there. They, they, they more argue the point. Here's a fun project. Watch an evolution a, a nature show, which is every nature show, but it's on television, right? Every nature show is going to mention evolution. It's going to tell you about how they evolved and, and this and that and the other thing. They're going to mention all that. So, so watch a, a nature show on TV and then see how long it is before they use creationist terms and creationist words. They'll use the words that they hate, the words that they fight against, the words that they deny. They will use it in every special, I guarantee it. They'll talk about how it was created. They'll talk about how, look how this animal is designed. 
You know, oh, this one is designed with these special abilities to be able to, to stand on the side of a tree or to lean down this way or to have a long tongue. Or do, do, and they'll go through and the miraculousness of the design makes them have to cry out, it is designed. They'll say that. They'll say it was made. They'll use the term made and they'll use the word creation. And yet they'll argue, they'll spend their whole life saying that it wasn't made, that it just happened, it was random chance. But the only way they can describe it is that it was designed and that it was made and that it had a creator every time. Every time, every special. I, I, I've never watched one where I haven't seen it because I make a point of, mm, ow, you can't use that word. That's our word. And yet they have to because it is there. The design is so loud that they have to say there is a designer. It's so evident. The fingerprints of God are everywhere that they can't help but see it. Matter of fact, Romans tells us that. Romans uses words like it is revealed. That the creator is revealed. It says that the creator manifests. That means he makes it seen, makes it clearly seen. Uh, he, it uses the word shown. And we're talking like in two verses. Remember the word shown. It even says clearly seen. The creator is clearly seen in the creation. Clearly seen. And understood by them. Is what Romans tells us. That's Romans 1.20. That it then concludes that at judgment day, it says this, because it is so clearly seen, so understood, so manifested, so shown unto them, it says they are without excuse. They will be found guilty. Uh, that I'm sure God will use their railing arguments against him to say, who are you fighting against? Who would you think? And, well, and to the point where you prove your own self that I am here, you just didn't like me. You didn't like my rules. You didn't want to like my standards. You didn't like the lifestyle that I offered unto you. And so they will be without excuse, Romans 1.20 tells us. Solomon's the same way. He has tried to limit himself to man-created thinking, to limit himself on the earth, thinking that here and now is all there is and all that matters, and he can't do it. It spills over to speak of eternity, or I have to talk about God and the designer, and he'll, he'll yearn for, for someone out there or something out there. And so you know, he tries to limit himself, but he finds that he's just like the lost world today. Secretly, they're yearning for more. Secretly, they're saying there must be a God. There must be an answer. Life draws men to consider these things. And Solomon will keep coming to the same conclusion. Eternity is evident. That there must be eternity. There must be. The only way we can have satisfaction or an answer for life is that there must be eternity. And that clearly there is a God. There must be. We yearn for it. We long for it. The only way we can make sense out of anything, there must be a God and there must be an eternity. Life must make sense. Death is wrong, right? We all come to that conclusion. Death is wrong. It ought not to be. Justice must be handed out. There must be some sense of justice. There must be some way that they are held accountable and that they pay for what they have done. We yearn for that. We long for that. We rest in that as Christians. Look at Job before we start in Ecclesiastes. Job. And I picked Job because he's the oldest book in the Bible in the sense that it's written you know, shortly after the flood, we believe. And Job has a lot of philosophy too. It's a lot of philosophy. That I guess one of the simple ways you can sum up Job, a lot of good reasoning, a lot of good philosophy applied wrong. It's like they, they think all these things, they say all these things, they have all these good arguments, but in Job's case, most of the time it's wrong. Um, and so here in, in Job 9, he's lamenting a lot like Solomon. He's thinking about some of these same things and, and because he feels, you know, his friends are all coming over and they're all like, Oh, confess all your sin and do all. You must have done something horrible and doing all this. And he's like, I didn't. You know, I, I've been doing everything that I know to do is right. And, and if I don't do anything right, I have a sacrifice for that in case I forgot something. You know, he, he was a very meticulous, you know, uh, humble person. And here he is 
wandering, much like Solomon. He's a thinker. And so uh, verse, chapter 9, verse 25, he says, Now my days are swifter than a post. <laughs> they flee away. They see no good. Sounds like Solomon. Verse 26, They are passed away as the swift ships, as the eagle that hasteneth to the prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will leave off my heaviness and comfort myself. Like, maybe I can just think, maybe I'll just forget about this. You know, but he lost all of his money. He lost all of his wealth. He lost all of his children. He's like, am I just supposed to say, well, I'll just, I'll just forget about all this? He's like, I can't comfort myself. He says in verse 20, he said, I'm afraid of all my sorrows. I know that thou will not hold me innocent. If I be wicked, why then labor in vain? He's like, if, if, there, if it doesn't matter, then, then why do I matter? Why do I try? And why do I try to try? Say it's a lot like Solomon. He goes, and if I wash myself with snow, snow water and make my hands never so clean, he says, yet shalt thou plunge me in a ditch, and mine own clothes shall abhor me. He says, maybe I can't clean myself up, and there's no one to clean myself up to. You know, he's kind of wandering that way. Um, verse 32, for he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman um, betwixt us, that might lay his hand upon us both. Let him take this rod away from me, and let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. And so as he, as he comes to these conclusions, and he's like, I can't comfort myself, and I can't wash myself, and, and, and if I'm wicked, I know there must be a judgment. And, and he basically is saying, I know there's a judgment coming. I know I'm going to have to stand and give an account. That is something that is written on our heart, that we know we're going to have to give an account. And he says, if, wicked, why, if I'm wicked and I have no escape, then why try? If I wash myself, I don't, I don't know if that will help, if I can do anything myself. And he said, maybe I need someone to plead my case. That's verse 33. He says, he asked for, I wish like there was a daysman. He says, neither is there a daysman. He says, I don't think there's a daysman. I wish I had a daysman. We don't know what a daysman is. Umpire, basically. It's an umpire. Uh, I'm sure the first baseball game, at the end of it, they came to the conclusion, we need someone to decide this, you know, because the guy who slid into home said, I was clearly safe, and the catcher's like, I clearly tagged you. You know, so they need some masked man to stand there and say, with a chest protector, nope, you're out. You know, and then they all yell and argue. They have to have someone to decide or the game would never get done. Every time you made it to base or every time they caught it, that was foul, that was fair. That was and so they came, we had an umpire there. That's what a daysman was. Someone who would come up and, and just settle the, these disputes and say, like, uh, you were clearly right, you were clearly wrong. He's a judge, basically a little judge. And he says, um, boy, I wish I, had a, I have, wish I had someone who would judge, an umpire to settle our disputes. You know, there is a judge. A judge who's going to hold the wicked accountable. He's going to defend the oppressed. He's going to rightly judge. He's going to be clear. He's going to be fair. He's not going to be swayed by the crowd. He's not going to be swayed by the, by the home field. He's not going to be swayed by that. He's going to clearly judge by his standard, by his rules that are there. We'll come back to Job at the end, and we'll see where he ends up later in the book. But if we go to Ecclesiastes 4 now, we'll see that um, he's a lot, he and Job are thinking along the same line. Well, I'm glad we have a judge, and I'm glad we have one to stand between us. It's Jesus Christ, right? He's the one who's going to be the daysman. He's the one who's going to plead our case and say, I've paid for their sins, and I've, they took the escape route. They're safe, you know. Uh, they can make it home. But Ecclesiastes 4. <clears throat> so, verse 1, he says, So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of such that were oppressed... 
and they had no comforter. And on the side of the, the oppressor there was power, but they had no comforter. So there's a lot of different ways to look at this verse, but uh, he says uh, there's, there's a lot of oppression in this world. There's a lot of people that are just, their lives are made miserable. Um, strong over the weak. You know, you always have a bully, right? There's always a bully out there. I don't care if you're in school or an adult. It seems like there's always someone trying to bully something over you. Rich, you know, oppressing the poor, taking advantage of, taking what little they have. You know, it seems like there's always the bad guy, the boss or the, you know, the government or some, something that's taking some of your hard-earned money, right? We always have them out there doing it that way. It seems like you're always something that's keeping you down. You ever look at your check and you're like, man, if I made what I make, I would live differently? It's like, yeah, you're keeping us down. Like, oh, you thought you were ahead? I'm taking that away too. And it just seems like, oh, there's always someone there. Solomon kind of looks like, goes, man, just the oppression of the world. Matter of fact, the Bible in the Old Testament spends a lot of time talking about the oppressed. It's just like there's always someone oppressing over them. You figure they had a lot of dictators in their world. You had pharaohs and everybody else saying, no, you don't get to do what you want to do. You're going to do what I tell you to do. Build me a pyramid or whatever. They, they, they make him do this work. And so, and he says, and here's Solomon as he looks at it and he's wisdom, he's like, the poor oppressed guy, he has no one who helps him. And he thinks in the wicked mean guy, you know, he really has nobody who helps him either. He says even, even this wicked oppressor, they might have power, but they don't have any helper. They don't have anybody, they don't have anybody guiding them on which way to do. And so, Neither one of them have a comforter, or neither one of them have a helper. But we do, don't we? Uh, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit, he's, he calls him the comforter, uh, that he is one who's going to come, our helper, our guide. I don't think we realize what a benefit we have for the time frame in which we live in, and what a privilege it is. <clears throat> but uh, the lost don't have what we have. That's why they're lost. You know, we have a guide. We have a helper. We, we have a comforter, one who can come and satisfy us and, 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 and comfort us with scriptures. Yet they long for him. You know, even the, the raging atheist, you know, uh, will, will cry out to him. If you ever watched a movie or read the testimony of an atheist, they'll always come to some point where they'll be like, I don't think you're real, but could you please help me? You know, they, they, they hedge their bets, you know. That's why they say, you know, in a foxhole there's no atheist. You know, it's like, please let the bomb stop. Please let the bullets quit. You know, please let this be over. You know, they, there's something in them that yearns for this. They, they want to help her. We can pray. We can ask for help. We can't ask for direction. We can't ask for guidance. And what an advantage that is. You think of a Wednesday night where we pray about, help us make decisions. You know, pray with us as, as we have the Holy Spirit will guide us and lead us and let us know and open this door and close that one. We, we talk about and we plead to a comforter, a guidance, a, a, a helper. God, show me the way and show me what you'd have me to do. Should I take this job? Should I not take that job? Should I buy that car? Not buy that car. But this house, should I marry her or not? Should I marry him or not? You know, it's like we, we have all these questions and we have one who helps guides us and opens doors and closes doors and opens windows and, and leads us and guides us and gives us scriptures and surrounds us with people to help with advice and to put it all out there. and What advantage that is. Can you imagine being lost and sitting in your house and you have no one? I don't know what to do. I guess I'll just do this. Seems right to me. There's a way that seems right to a man. The way there is is death. But what an advantage we have. And yet they long for it. So don't be afraid to witness. That's what I take from this. Don't be afraid to approach them because they are secretly longing for what you have. That they want to be able to pray to someone. They want to know that life has a purpose and a point. That this horrible thing that they're going through might work out to be some benefit later. That there is some release at the end of life. That there is some rest, some comfort. That they can have some knowledge of what's going on in the afterlife. They, they have nothing. They are grasping at straws and they have no hope. And they are all men most miserable. 
So let's not buy the lie that we need to be quiet, that they don't want what we have, because secretly they're yearning for it. They're longing for it. Even in their anger and their oppression against it, they are crying out, boy, I wish I had that. You know, and so we need to live it out loud. We need to not be afraid. And we need to be speaking up. We need not to be afraid to speak. The Bible says, how can they hear without a preacher? You know, Muslims aren't afraid to stand up and say what they think. Why should we be? We should be speaking up. We should be talking. And so he, he, that's how he starts out about oppression. And he starts thinking about the wickedness of the world and just how hard it is. And just, oh, life is hard. You ever think that? I think that. You know, life is hard. Life is expensive. Life has a lot of grief to it. So Solomon's considering all that. In verse 2, he says, Wherefore I praise the dead, which are already dead, more than the living, which are yet alive. Verse 3, Yea, better, uh, better is he than both they, which hath not yet been born, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Wow, now, this is considered some of the darkest verses in the book. <laughs> when he's like, it's just better to be dead. Or it's better not to be born. You know, it's just better not to be. Because uh, he considers it this way. He's like, well, the dead, they're not oppressed anymore. They've escaped. You know, they don't have any worries. He's not having to pay his taxes now. He doesn't have to you know, answer this grieving person. He no longer deals with his neighbor. He no longer deals with the governor. He no longer deals with all this. Boy, the dead, maybe they have answers. I don't know. Maybe they know what's going on. Some understanding in that way. No one's oppressing them. You know, they, they basically got out of jail. If they were in jail or if they were a slave, they were set free. You know, death has set them free. There's no boss, no tyrant, no evil person over them making their life miserable just for misery's sake. Husband no longer beats her anymore, I guess if you're looking for the silver lining. You know, no wife to dog him anymore. You know, they, they just seem like, boy, they are free. You know, death has set them free. Uh, that's worldly thinking at its highest. Evolution is built on death. Um, you know, hey, you know, we're just getting better. You know, that, that, that one, they died off and we learned something from them, so we're going to apply it to our life. Um, I think we have no evidence of that. But that's what they hope for, right? You know, that death is making it better, that it's improving things, yet is never observed. Worldly philosophy and worldly plans is that, and worldly problems, they usually think the answer is death, right? Well, there's just too many people. You know, what about pollution? Overcrowding in the city, hunger and famine, we can't feed them all. It's because there's too many of you. Start erasing yourselves, please. You know, that's their answer. You know, um, Kill babies. There's too many lives. I can't. It's a stress. I can't have this. I can't do that. I can't. What a burden it'll be on me. Death is the answer. Death is the solution. The government will fund the death answer, right? They'll put it out there and they'll call it pro-choice. No, it's pro-death. And it's death is the answer. That's is, that is not the answer. Commit suicide. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe things are stocked up too much. Maybe you have too many debts. You're going to get in trouble. Kill yourself. You know, if the oppressors are on you and you're going to be held accountable for your actions... Do away with yourself, escape it all. That's their answer for that as well, let alone, hey, if you don't think you're going to stack up to anything or you're not in this class or that class or going down this way, just you know, erase yourself, do the world a favor. You know, that's, if it's the outward sign or the subtle thing, that's, that's what they choose. That's what they say. That's what they push. Uh, Dr. Kevorkian, remember him? Dr. Death, going around trying to promote suicide. There's a fascination with death in, our, in the culture, really. Um, skulls, skeletons, 
or decorations, you know, T-shirts, posters, uh, rings, tattoos. They have it all on there. Earrings, you know, bracelets, you know, between uh, little girls and, and little boys. You know, it's like skulls and death. And yes, this is the cool thing. It's death, you know, that they are celebrating, that they're decorating themselves with. Logos, on and on and on. It seems like those are the most popular ones that sell. They embrace death. Don't fear the reaper is their song that they play. You know, maybe it's the only way out. Don't fear the Romeo and Juliet, what a love story. They both killed themselves. It's set up as this big, oh, what love, that they would do that in that way. Death, death, death. Death is a culture of death. Matter of fact, the world tells us that they're death. Satan is a murderer, right? So which one's he going to push you towards, life or death? He's going to push you towards death. And escape now before you have any answers. We have five states in the United States, California, Colorado, Oregon, um, Vermont, and Washington, that allow doctor-assisted suicide. I didn't know that. I thought the whole the big argument with Dr. Kravorkian was that as Americans, we're saying, no, we don't do that. Europe does that, and other cultures do that. We don't do that. But you see, they'll make the big case, and they'll make the big push, and then subtly they let it slide back in. There's one state, Montana, that allows for court-ruled suicide, assisted suicide. They can decide that, yes, this person needs to go. That's nice. Forty states have rules against it. Yay, Indiana. You know, we're in there. Four states have no specific answer. You can do what you want and see if you can get by with it. And so, uh, let alone euthanasia is starting to be on the table. Hey, this is better. And there's people who argue for you know, I'm not even going to go there. This is dark on, on, on who they think we should kill and what counts as a viable life up until certain days. It, it's, it's sickening. It's sickening, but that's our culture today. It's our culture. It is. It's going to get worse. You know it is. And so, uh, but the lost think that that's the answer because there's nothing. You know, if you die, you're just dead. You go, you know, comfortable hole, I guess. And there's, you're annihilated and there's no more problems and you're set free. It might not be heaven, you know, because they can't argue for heaven. You know, but at least it's nothing and nothing is better than grief and misery. That's what Solomon's arguing here. Oh, it'd be better. Nothing is better than all this. Just being erased. I read a quote from a, Bible teacher has said that men are like silly fishes. They see one another caught and jerked out of the pond of life, but they don't see that, alas, the fire and the pan into which they are cast, he that dies in his sins. See, but there is a God. If you die in your sins, it's not an escape. It's worse. You've now entered into no hope. Dante has in his entrance of hell written, abandon hope, all ye who enter here. That's true. No hope. There's no hope, there's no rest, there's no comfort. It is turmoil, it is remembrance, it is agony, it is remembering the life and the legacy you left and all those you left behind and what is going on if you take that way out. And so no, there is an eternity. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And you do go to one and you can't just say, well, it's just bliss or it's nothing. And No, there is. And Solomon here is trying to say, well, if, if there's nothing, then surely death is better. He's going to come to the conclusion, we know the answer. He says, no, there is a God, and we have to serve him and keep his laws. And so death is not the answer, no matter how hard the world pushes it on you. Um, and that could be a whole other subject that we can go on as far as honor and, and life and dignity and, and all that. And, you know, and when there is, you know, we live in a, in a strange time with technology, and so there is a time when it's like we've done all we can do uh, in, in that way. But <clears throat> we're talking about, you know what I'm talking about. But verse 3, he says this, he says, Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done in their son. He says, boy, you know, the best thing would be just not to be born. Uh, that's not true. God is the God of life. 
He makes life. He honors life. I'll tell you what, God honors life so much that if you choose to rebel against him your whole life and be that raging atheist or even a, you know, a cold-hearted agnostic, it's like, I'm just not going to choose, I don't know, and so I just go through my life, that God will honor your choice. However you lived your life, he honors your choice with life forever. That's why there's hell. And God has deemed that life in, in hell is better than no life at all because life is living. And he says, I have given you life. I want you to choose life. I want you to live forever. Which address do you choose? That's where it comes down to. Do you choose life with me or do you choose life away from me? Either way, he honors it. And God says, life is better than annihilation. And yet there's whole churches that are bringing up that, surely annihilation is better than hell. God knows what's better. And God says, even that is better than nothing. And yet here Solomon's trying to argue that nothing is better. That, it, that, that it'd be better if you didn't live at all. But God is the giver of life. And life is wonderful. Think of the adventure of life. Who knows what tomorrow brings? Think of all the love that you have in your life. And how, and just when you think, well, I couldn't love anybody else. Then you meet someone else. Or you have a little baby born into your family. Or you, or you, you, know, you get a pet. You know, pets are good things to love too. Yeah, you, you love more. And you're like, there's always room for more. You have family and friends. Meet new people and have new adventures. We have you know, different adventures and different you know, exposures that we get to see. Sights that we get to see. Tastes that we get to have. It's always neat. You go to a new restaurant. Mm, yeah. You know, I'd never had five guys you know, until the first time I went there. And I'm like, that's the best hamburger ever. Where's this been all my life? That's a good hamburger. You know, all these tastes. It's like, and we argue about it sometimes. It's like, Rally's had the best fry for a while now. I'm, five guys got a good fry. I don't know. There's some other good fries. Freddy's like her fries. Elaine hates them. You know, so we have, it's like, you know, all these different things. It's like, oh, that's just all these things. It's like, oh, sounds. I like different sounds. That was one of the things I was most excited about to see with Joel's uh, system. It was his sound system. He'd sent me some videos of this thing doing some test sounds. And all these different things. He's like, you can't wait till you hear this low tone that Adam put in this animation of his logo. And it goes, boong. And then this bass goes, Whoa. For a long time. And then at the end, I'm like, yeah, do it again. You know? Play it again. And all those, I like the sounds of it all. Let's hear that. Smells, you know. I like it when you walk in and he's like, oh, it smells good. What is that? Um, it's like the other day, Elaine and I was like, it's cold out, but it smells like spring rain, right? It smells like spring rain out here. This a spring rain, a cleansing, a washing kind of a rain. And, or sometimes we step outside. It feels like I'm on vacation. It's a vacation kind of a smell. Or this reminds me of this. You ever have a smell take you back and you know you're sitting under your pajamas under a Christmas tree or, or doing something? Just a smell can just take you someplace instantly. It just triggers that with your memory so much. And how to have all these different things that we can experience. The eye is never satisfied with seeing. I'm always like, show me more. When we watch a good movie, you know what we usually say to each other? You know what I feel like? Good, another good movie. You know, I, I, that makes you, I want to hear another good story. I, tell me something else. Tell me something new. I, I want to hear that. New adventures. All these things. Life is full of so much and so much potential however we invest it. And we only have one life. He's saying it's better if you hadn't been born? No. Life is good. Life is... A, Choosing life. There's only one life that Jesus says it was better if they'd never been born. Look at Matthew 26. So hopefully you're all going, hmm, I'm through that. Matthew 26, verse 24. So the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. He's about to die. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been better... Or it had been good for that man 
if he had not been born. There's the only one where it said it had been better if they had not been born. Judas Iscariot. He lived with Jesus Christ for three years. He knew Jesus Christ. He knew the sound of his voice. I mean, the sound of his voice. I know what he sounds like. I know his words when he's speaking it, but I don't know what his voice sounds like. You know, he knew, he'd listen to him tell stories. He'd listen and watch the reaction on crowds. He, he had the explanation, right? He would tell something in a parable, and it'd be lost on them, and the disciples were like, uh, could you help us out? And, and then he would give them the explanation, and he would be there for that. He walked with him and talked with him, and he had his money, and he was took in charge of him, and he had care. So that means if you're having money, that means he has special conversations where Jesus is like, go procure a room and make sure that we have this, that, and the other thing. And he'd say, okay, and he'd, he'd run and send him out. And so he had those little trusted jobs in that way. He knew him. He knew him, knew him, knew him. And he knew who he was. And he knew the things he had seen. He'd watched every miracle. He'd watched dead people made alive. He had watched Lazarus who stunk come hopping out of the grave after he called his name. He, he, he saw all that. And yet he betrayed him. He denied him. He turned him over to be killed for 30 pieces of silver. Shown only kindness. Shown only care by the Savior even at the end. Betrayest thou me with a kiss? Jesus says to him. What you do, do it quickly. He gave him death. What kind of suffering does he have? There's a hot place in hell. And I know that there's degrees in hell. The Bible tells us that. Judas, Jesus says, it would have been better for him not to have been born. But see, we fight for life. We are pro-life, right? That's, that's, that's a tag that we can bat, proudly bear. They'll try to... Uh, Switch it because pro-life is, is upbeat, right? We are for life and we are for life, pro-life. Yeah, we are for life, for life. And so we are for both of these. And yet they'll switch it to make it negative, right? No, you're anti-abortion. Oh, that makes it seem negative. You know, we're against the negative, negative. I am against the negative, negative because I'm pro-life. We are for life. We are, life is valued. We fight for life. We fight for the Down syndrome. We fight for this, that, and the other. We're saying all life matters. All life should be out there. They should be allowed to live. We defend it. We are saying choose it. And, G- and throughout scriptures, God puts it before him choose this day you know choose life and he'll give you this and so he offers him all these things and job looked at all this evidence and he came to a conclusion that solomon will a few chapters from now but if you go back to job job 19 this is quite a few later you know when earlier we had him asking these questions And this becomes a beloved text. Job becomes part of Handel's Messiah. We sing it at Christmas time, right? I can hardly read it without singing it. You know, I sing it in Lauren Harris's voice, but it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's things that he knows. It's like before he was like, boy, I wish, you know, and I didn't have. And then, and then he embraces Scripture. He embraces God. He embraces what he knows, and you figure he has the handed down stories of creation. Who God is in that? You know, he has the things that happened before the flood. He knows about Enoch. And Enoch's words were that a Redeemer is coming, that he'll stand at the end time. And so he has the prophecies that are contained in that. He has very little. And yet he comes to the conclusion that Solomon will come to too. In verse 20, uh, so Job 19, verse 23, he says, Oh, that my words were written. And they were. <laughs> and oh, that they were printed in a book. And they are. I have it. Do you guys have it? And so his <laughs> prayers are answered right here. He says, that they were graven with iron pen and lead and rock forever. And I think 
it's in God's word, it'll be there forever. So those prayers are answered. And he says, here's what he testifies. Here's something that he says, I wish was written down forever so people will know. Here's what we know. For I know that my Redeemer liveth. Jesus hadn't even come the first time yet. But he is looking to see him coming. He's seen him as his Redeemer. One who has purchased him. One who has, who has saved him. One who has redeemed him. Taking him who was lost. Him one who was the wicked man. That his cleaning did him no good. He's taken him and he has now given him life. He's redeemed him. He's taking something that had no value and given it value. I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand on the later days upon the earth. He believed that Jesus Christ would be on the earth on the last day. Just as we are looking forward to. And though after... Uh, Though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet my flesh shall I see God. He believed in the resurrection, that he would see him, even though in Job's oldest book, he probably is dust of dust right now. And he says, but I know that he somehow will resurrect me and I will see him with mine eyes. He says, I will see him, whom I shall see for myself, verse 27. For mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins, my guts shall be consumed within me. He says, I know that. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that there is that daysman that will be there and plead my case that I have put my cares upon him. He got saved the same way you and I do. He repented and trusted in Jesus Christ, his Redeemer, to save him. He might not have known his personal name as you and I do. Yeshua, Hamashiach. But, but, but uh, he trusted in him. And so, yeah, the Redeemer, Jesus. And so, yeah, choose life. It's good to be alive. We are for life. We want life. We defend life. He's going to make us live again. Even though the enemy might attack us and death will come, the curse will be upon us. Uh, there was one group you know, during the rapture that will not taste of death. I vote to be in that group. Uh, but, uh, but death, when it does come, will be defeated. Jesus Christ will resurrect us. So death is the enemy. Death is to be avoided, not embraced. Death is not the one to run after. It's not to run into. It's not the one to seek. No, we choose life. And we fight for life. And we do for that. Death, I plan to make it the last thing I do. So should you, right? So yes, life. That's why I root for the rapture. Uh, I'm curious about death. What will that be like? And I'll stand under his presence and the angels will escort me. I'm not that curious about it. I'd rather fly and meet him in the clouds. I know I have it described to me in that way. And you can have that if you repent of your sins, see them as wicked, turn your back on them, and trust in Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, trust in this Redeemer that Job looked to, the one that Solomon has to come to, the boy we need to obey God and trust his word and listen to him. They are pointing, they are the ways of life. Then we can have satisfaction. Don't be like Judas. Well, I think of Judas being in that hottest place in hell, and I think of people who sit in church each and every week and, are self-deceived. I think that they have salvation, but they're trusting in their baptism. Or maybe they're trusting in their church membership. Or they're trusting that they gave the Lord's locker and they helped and volunteered over here or there. And, they did, and they're trusting these good works. And that's some of the things we'll look at tonight. But salvation is not works-oriented. It's a gift. A gift that's freely given by Jesus Christ. And if we repent and trust in Him, we enter into life. And then you are given the comforter and a helper and a one who guides you and one who answers your prayer and who makes all things work together for your good. If you love him or are called according to his purpose, all those come together for him. And so, man, what a, what a hope we have, right? That we have that comforter and that we're not to take this negative man-centered thinking. And so take this lesson with this, that open your eyes, see that they're embracing death and offer them life. Offer them salvation. Offer them forgiveness of sin. 
Offer them a comforter, a guider, a purpose, and a meaning in that way, and that God has plans for you if you repent and trust in Him. And that should give us a boldness. Let's close in prayer.